The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. The future of the academic workplace presents both challenges and opportunities as we navigate the shift to working from home or telecommuting. Recent research studies have measured the impact of online meetings. For example, brainwave measurements show that sustained concentration in online meetings produces signs of fatigue within 30 minutes. These studies have also found that remote collaboration is more mentally challenging than in-person teamwork. And we have heard of the social impacts as well. Over half of working parents and 88% of working mothers have expressed frustration as they try to balance household demands while working from home. A recent article from Inside Higher Ed explains that in the academic workplace, junior faculty are bearing a heavier brunt for reasons that include young children with no daycare, lack of family in the immediate area, and a loss of the infrastructure that enables their work. But some surprising advantages have also been identified. For example, telecommuting is more flexible than the traditional workplace, and work can be scheduled around family demands. Working from home also drives more empathy among colleagues, as been shown in studies, and this is worldwide. And employees that have always participated in meetings remotely now feel more included when everyone joins the meeting remotely. These are some of the ideas we will explore further in today's podcast on Telestress. This is Karen May Newman, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at San Diego State University, hosting a conversation with two of our faculty experts on this topic, Dr. Katrina Malouf and Dr. Wayne Beach. Welcome, Katrina and Wayne. Thank you for joining me today. Could each of you please introduce yourselves? Sure. I am Katrina Malouf, and I am a professor in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program in the School of Exercise and Nutritional Sciences. And my area of research interest is in stress-related chronic pain, both in physiological mechanisms and also clinical management. And this is Wayne Beach. I'm a professor in the School of Communication in the College of Professional Studies and Fine Arts. Um, my research focuses on the study of human interactions, and my expertise focuses on communication and cancer, both between family members and patients as they deal with 
diagnosis and prognosis of a cancer journey, and also during clinical encounters between cancer patients and their oncologists. Well, welcome and thank you again. So we've been hearing a lot about this term, telestress. Could you help me understand exactly what that is? Sure, I'll start us off. It really means working in home environments or some kind of removed uh, remote environment that differ from the traditional workplace. And that means juggling many kinds of domestic issues. For example, space, uh, whether there is demarcated space for working quietly in in, uh, long periods of time. It means that you have to deal with issues of uh, spending more time together with family members than usual, which of course is a double-edged sword. It can be good and bad. It has involved, uh, as uh, Karen noted, uh, things like parenting and taking care of children that are also working remotely and out of school, and also perhaps caring for the elderly uh, in a home. And then there are technology impacts of working remotely. You have to learn and implement new technologies such as Zoom or Canvas and others. And there's a lack of immediacy with uh, uh, co-workers and collaborators and students and limited nonverbal access when you're interacting with other people and many more issues. And all of these um, and more can and do create stress for people working in remote environments. I guess I would just add that the technology that we use to communicate remotely isn't stressful in and of itself. It's how we use that technology. So technologies can can cause stress in all of the different ways that Wayne mentioned, but also technologies can be a way to bring us together and, and release stress in certain ways. So I'm hoping that in this podcast, we can focus on on both the the triggers of stress through digital communication, but also ways that we can productively use it. I completely agree. But let's start with what happens to individuals when they become stressed and how is stress displayed in their communications with others? Katrina? Katrina? So on an individual level, stress is really our body's reaction to a physical or an emotional challenge. And and this is a necessary adaptive feature of both human and animal behavior that puts us in a state of heightened alert so that we can recognize and respond to and survive potentially threatening situations. So Physiologically, stress activates a a really small region in the brain, um, right at the base of the brain called the hypothalamus. And when this brain region is activated, it triggers two different responses. One is a fast acting neural response that releases adrenaline. Um, So that adrenaline rush that you get um, when you're stressed Um, is one of the outputs or one of the stress responses from the system. That increase results in an immediate increase in heart rate, in blood pressure, in your breathing rate, and really get you ready for that fight or flight response. So the second response is a slower acting neuroendocrine response, which ultimately results in the release of cortisol into your bloodstream. And that cortisol, which is a major stress hormone, circulates both through the body and the brain and results in sort of widespread effects on both body and brain. 
So usually this system turns itself off, right? The, the stress response is designed to be response to acute stressors and it, it, it's a survival mechanism. So typically it would turn itself off. And it's funny because when I teach this system to students, I always give them the example of a bear chasing you in the woods. And I got to experience that firsthand. We took a trip to Yosemite this summer and I actually did have a bear jump into the water less than six feet behind me and got to experience the stress response firsthand. Luckily, the bear was in the mood for sushi rather than me. So he dove down and came up with a huge fish and left me alone. <laughs> and so as soon as the bear left, my stress system calmed down and turned itself off. So that's how it's designed to work. What we see more often are these sort of prolonged activations of the stress response in response to everyday work stressors, which have, have really been exacerbated during the pandemic. So when you have prolonged feelings of fear or anxiety or anger, all of these emotions activate that stress response and, and also suppress regions of the brain that are involved in sort of higher level critical thinking. And when you've got prolonged activation or chronic stress, that's been associated with um, a, just a large number of stress-related health conditions, including pain, which I'm interested in studying, but as well as diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, obesity, asthma, and all of those should sound familiar as conditions that predispose you for higher risk of complications with COVID, for example. So on the communication side, the question becomes, as uh, Katrina and I have discussed several times, how do the individual experiences and displays of emotion get uh, worked out uh, in the presence of other people in social interaction? Uh, let me give some examples. Well, if a person is anxious or worried or nervous, and that is a form of stress, people in their interaction can display irritability or anger or even quietness and removal or passive aggressive behaviors. And so when you're dealing with telestress in remote environments, various kinds of triggering mechanisms can trigger stress in the individual but if the individual, of course, is in a communication environment involving family members or others, then the question then is how or if that stress gets displayed and communicated and what kind of patterns be, and of behavior that can create for those in the family. So if you're dealing with timelines and schedules in the remote environment and home, but there are many distractions and you're not getting your work done on time, and the stressors of uh, domestic life are adding on top of that, the question then becomes what kind of communication patterns get enacted in the family? Are they constructive? Are they dysfunctional? Are they helpful or not? Do they bring the family closer together or the spouse or the partner or the parent and the child or and or do they separate them? And so it's really talking about the social construction of body and mind, uh, where the individual in, in the study of communication is not so much the analysis, but the analysis is of the relationship, the interactance. So it's really non-summative. It's 
one plus one equals three. It's you, me, and us. And the question then becomes, how do those patterns get worked out? And with remote work and education and virtual education, there's also issues of isolation and loneliness. And uh, for example, in some cases, a lack of affection, which can lead to other sorts of problems and issues uh, in terms of isolation being a trigger mechanism for uh, depression and for other kinds of issues. And so the work-play balance with stress is very, very difficult in many cases with many individuals and many communication relationships. So really, ideally, uh, if you're going to fully understand stress, you need to understand the kinds of individual mechanisms and responses that Katrina was describing, but also how those get carried out and enacted in real time in language and social interaction between the participants, the, the, the people involved in, in the environments in which you're working. Both are critically important, but neither alone fully explains the stress response or the patterns of behavior that come from it. Have you heard much from our colleagues and, and what, what is the nature of the things you've heard about how telestress is affecting the performance of their academic duties? You know, I've heard that the faculty members that have been teaching virtually and are constantly dealing with Zoom meetings and phone calls are getting exhausted. The fatigue for them is, is something that they have reported that is real. Another thing that uh, seems to be very concerning for people is the isolation and the lack of immediate community and, in many cases, fellowship with students and with colleagues. And that kind of uh, lack of immediacy and the lack of nonverbal access to other people and the ability to improvise uh, behaviors, just, for example, running into people on campus and having an interesting conversation or stopping in someone else's office or being in meetings with people and involved in interesting discussions, all of which get kind of redefined when you're dealing with remote stress issues. And so um, those, those issues, and a final one, of course, is several of my colleagues have directly reported, um, you know, the problem with raising children uh, at home who uh, are dealing with their own schooling remotely, or if they're even younger than school age, there are problems with bringing people into the home because of COVID-19, uh, caring for their children. And, and now the question is, how do you continue to create uh, intimate relationships that are constructive and educational with your children while you have all these professional responsibilities that you're carrying out at home? And that's just a few, but I think those are, are some of the top priorities that faculty have when dealing with uh, telestress and, and domestic work slash work environments. Well, many of those certainly resonate with me. Katrina, have you heard anything from our colleagues about their telestress experiences? Yeah, I would echo um, probably the biggest concern I've heard from colleagues is really this idea of balancing work life, right? So we used to have a normal or a natural break in our work life and our home life. And there was a natural separation with a nine to five schedule for a lot of people. And so 
in a remote environment that those natural boundaries get disrupted. And so a lot of my colleagues have had real issues trying to, to set new schedules and schedules that accommodate both work activities and family activities which overlap in time when you're at home. And so that's been a real challenge. The other big challenge I've heard is the concern or the anxiety that's caused by worrying about children's stress and children's mental health, um, being at home and away from their friends as well. And then one more that I'll mention that that I've heard is anxiety about what the workplace will look like post-COVID. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and so that that causes a certain level of anxiety. Yeah, let me just jump in uh, with a couple more quick examples, which I think play off of what Katrina had mentioned. You know, it's not that the academic environment has had a traditional nine-to-five work schedule, but many people that I've spoken with are actually spending much more time working than they did when they were on campus or often on campus. And that leads to issues of, you know, sitting in a, in a chair in front of a computer screen for longer periods of time. And it doesn't necessarily do the body any good to be sitting that long. And, you know, maybe people, because this is still relatively new for us, haven't yet created standards of taking adequate breaks or mixing in the balance that Katrina mentioned with, you know, work and play and are not, you know, stretching, exercising, taking normal activity breaks that are much needed. And so I think there are some physical issues here that are not just mental and emotional, but uh, they are also consequential you know, in terms of eye strain on the computer, you know, bowing over to the computer, sitting in bad postures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I think a lot of us are just facing the reality that we need to understand that that's happening and figure out more healthy ways to balance that so that we don't create alternative problems as this moves forward. Yes, I think there has been some reluctance in setting up the same ergonomic workspaces that we have in our offices due to the uncertainty and just how long we will be telecommuting. Absolutely. Could you maybe expand on what the role of uncertainty is in managing stress in this pandemic era? Well, we know uncertainty is one of the driving factors for anxiety. We know that anxiety is one of the biggest triggers of stress in the brain. And so when you have a high level of uncertainty, which we do both in terms of what the post-pandemic world will look like and in terms of of just social unrest and political unrest and all of the sociopolitical issues that are happening on top of a pandemic, that leads to a large degree of uncertainty, which triggers this chronic stress response that we talked about earlier. Um, So uncertainty plays a huge role. And to the extent that we can reduce uncertainty, we can actually suppress activation of the stress response. When things are unpredictable, they're very hard to deal with, and it can lead to 
what's classically described as learned helplessness, right? Where there's a chronic sense of a loss of control, and that can lead to repeated events of frustration and stress uh, because of uh, what people are dealing with because they can't fully understand what the future holds. Let me give an example, if I might, from some of the research that we've done on a large study of oncology interviews between cancer patients and their doctors. We found, for example, that patients coming into oncology interviews that were more uncertain uh, were more proactive during the interviews and asked more questions to try to reduce that uncertainty. And that was not surprising to us. What was a finding or a discovery that we had to come to grips with was that the same patients that asked more questions came out of the interviews more uncertain. And we had to try to figure out how to explain that. One plausible explanation from looking at doctors' answers is that the doctors' answers were very complicated and very biomedical. And they didn't help patients to come to grips with the basic questions they had about uncertainty. But a related explanation is that cancer itself is hard to predict and it's hard to uh, come to grips with. An adequate prognosis of what's going to happen in the future with cancer is difficult to provide and it's not often not reassuring to, to not have uh, that kind of response. And so really what's happened is that cancer patients have had their world ruptured and it's been changed. And one way to cope with that is that they want to understand the future, which uh, their uncertainty does not allow them to do very, in many cases, with cancer. And so they're fraught with uncertainties and that leads to problems. And I think it's very similar to what's going on with this pandemic era and the Black Lives Matter movement and other issues of social injustice and the political schisms that are so distracting both nationally and, and globally. And I think that, that we're all victims, in a sense, of this pandemic era. And for example, just yesterday when a sports, I mean, the San Diego State University, as you know, or as many know, has canceled fall sports altogether, including football. And just yesterday in the San Diego Union Tri Tribune, one of the sports writers wrote this. He said, nothing right now is black or white, right or wrong, as COVID-19 shreds the rhythms of our lives. Welcome to Slate Gray. Uncertainty is up two touchdowns and driving. And I think that that's what's happening with a lot of people like ourselves who are more isolated and working remotely, is that uncertainty is here. It's inevitable. We don't have any assurance that we can go back to the old normal, and we don't yet know what the the borders and the guidelines for the new normal will be. So we don't want to isolate uncertainty from thing, things then like fears, but also hopes, because there are many positives that come out of this. Human beings are survivors, and the focus is on resilience and becoming hopeful and uh, looking at you know how to balance the difficulties and the uh, challenges with uncertainties that we're facing with more hopeful alternatives. And I think that's uh, also a topic for discussion. So how does uncertainty present an opportunity for us to develop resilience in this current pandemic crisis? Well, I think 
I think uncertainty, although although it does increase stress, it's a driver for positive change. So with change, there is necessarily some degree of uncertainty, and that's been true throughout history. So given all of the uncertainty and socioeconomic and political unrest that's happening right now, that comes with the opportunity, and as Wayne talked about earlier, hope for positive change. Yeah, a couple adages come to mind. One is, in acceptance lieth peace, let thy heart be still. You know, there is a sense in which hope and resilience can arise when we come to accept what's happened, even though we don't fully understand it, and we can't predict it and control it. So I do think that efforts made on uh, accepting our circumstances allows us the freedom to begin to move forward. Another interesting feature about uncertainty in general is that, you know, there's not necessarily anyone to blame here. There aren't, you know, ready-made scapegoats. And the enemy here, the COVID-19 or or racial ethnic unrest, et cetera, et cetera, is kind of invisible at times and highly unpredictable and creates very real and consequential health risks. You know, there's another old adage that comes to mind, what you don't forgive, you're bound to relive, right? So the question is, if there's no one to blame in the midst of our uncertainty, then how do we come to accept it as the new normal and move forward as best we can? I I think that there are really many silver linings that can help us to be hopeful. For example, being at home, you can have more flexible hours. You can, for example, engage in less travel with less traffic, which can be less stressful. And you can have very timely short-term and long-term bonding uh, with family members and partners and spouses. It also, and I've heard colleagues report that one sense of hope that they have is that their lives are in some ways less stressed because they're having more solitude and they're having more peaceful, quiet times uh, in their home environments, which allows greater opportunities to concentrate on your work and to create the flex hours to, to go after that. So I think that, you know, a large part of our challenge together here as a corporate community is to come to understand that the future has been redefined for us. It was no one's choice, but uh, it's here and that we need to come to accept it uh, and not blame people or events rather than just come to grips with it and try to be as resilient and hopeful as possible. And I think, I think the, other, the other opportunity that we can take advantage of really is the, the inclusivity of digital platforms, right? So one example in, in our own department is lectures. Traditionally, we use lectures that are actively practicing physical therapists. And so they traditionally have not been able to join our faculty meetings where we make really impactful decisions that affect their lives, their academic lives as lecturers. And since the pandemic, we have gotten full 
participation from our lecturers because we now hold meetings at times where they can attend and everyone is there virtually in the same space. And so we've really been able to take advantage of that opportunity for inclusivity, which I think has been a real benefit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because, uh, you know, we're all going through this together. And uh, uh, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, uh, Karen had mentioned earlier that one of the outcomes of the Microsoft study uh, on remote uh, work styles was that you know, colleagues can have a greater empathic response to one another. And I have noticed that that's the case, at least thus far, with my colleagues uh, and with with uh, current and former students as well. Uh, it, this gives us something that we can all commiserate about and with. And that commiseration, that, that shared sense of community, because we're all caught up in it, I think is really, really important. And that can create a bonding, a togetherness, uh, a sense of community and fellowship that is not necessarily there when we're working more independently with regular campus uh, college life. So I do think that, you know, there are very unique windows of opportunity here to realize that um, uh, we're all going it, uh, through it together and we can create uh, new and innovative ways uh, to, to manage it um, and be able to commiserate with each other about those ways and get excited about those new creations as well. Well, thank you. That's a great segue to my last question, which is what kind of productive and stress relieving ways are some faculty finding to try to normalize this working from home and online interactions? So I've heard a variety of different things from faculty, some more successful than others. In terms of working, I think the Microsoft study that you mentioned earlier, Karen, made a really great suggestion to, to really try to schedule breaks as best you can between meetings. So you're going to be cognitively most engaged for the first 30 minutes of a meeting. So if you can keep your, your meeting times down 30 minutes or less, that's going to be helpful. If you can't, scheduling short breaks during longer meetings will be helpful. And then taking a, a little bit longer break every couple of hours, I think is a good suggestion as well. There was a, another article that I read recently in comprehensive psychiatry that had some great suggestions. So we don't have a lot of control right now over things that are happen happening nationally and globally, but we do control our own schedules. And so it can be really helpful to proactively develop an activity schedule where you plan downtime, time away from your computer and with your family, doing things like putting silent alerts on your telephone, communicating boundaries within which you'll respond to emails so that colleagues know what those boundaries are, keeping your phone in another room during those scheduled downtimes, and also scheduling physical activity into your day. Wayne talked about the importance of physical activity and not overlooking physical activity in our lives. Physical activity is one of the most powerful antidotes to stress, and it releases all sorts of feel-good hormones that can help us. So really 
putting scheduled physical activity time into our day is important. So, so creating a, an activity schedule can really reduce uncertainty and increase our sense of control. Both of those things we know relieve stress. Another suggestion I would have is using relaxation and other stress-reducing techniques, including online apps. There are some really good apps that have engaging activities in things that are known to reduce stress, things like meditation, yoga, deep breathing, being present in the moment while you're doing activities that you enjoy. All of these things help reduce stress. Headspace, Breathe to Relax, Virtual Hope Box, these are all really good apps um, that, that people can use to help teach them some of these techniques. We're currently conducting a study in collaboration with the HealthLink Center and also community clinical partners to teach these relaxation and stress coping strategies to patients with chronic pain. So we've seen really nice benefits with that. Yeah, I think that if you want to really talk about increasing resilience and becoming more hopeful, uh, one of the primary features of that, it's even a prerequisite, I think, is just getting our priorities straight. And by that, I mean, you know, who is really important in our lives and what kind of efforts can we make to build those relationships up and to edify them and what activities are really important in our lives. Those basic questions and relationships shouldn't be overlooked and they often do get short shrift when we're so busy in our academic lives and our other social obligations and community involvement. So this is a window of opportunity for us to be able to reframe what our priorities are, figure out those priorities and invest in them as a source of uh, resilience and hope. Uh, another way I think is through various kinds of creative outlets. I know uh, faculty and others in the community who have, uh, have artistic gifts and are painting and drawing and decorating more. Um, they're cooking more and in more creative ways. They're doing landscaping. They're doing remodeling during these periods of time, all of which can uh, create in environments for us to add uh, you know, some bright lights in the midst of these darker clouds that are hovering around our culture and contemporary society. I couldn't agree more with what Katrina said about the importance of uh, relaxation and meditation and also various kinds of spiritual disciplines depending upon uh, the belief systems of the participants. Uh, people who go to churches or synagogues, for example, have not been allowed to do that in the midst of COVID-19. And so there have been online access environments for them to uh, build fellowship with one another. And whatever the issue might be with individuals' belief systems, I think it's important to, to tune in on that. And and just, again, to re-mention physical exercise, I happen to run and cycle regularly. I live near Mission Bay, and that for me is accessible. I think without that, I would really have had a much more difficult time coping with these last five months, however long it's been. It seems like it's a decade in a way. But I do think that, you know, uh, whatever physical exercise works for you, getting out and walking the neighborhoods, for example, can create a great break. And walking is 60 to 65% of the benefit of running. And there's all sorts of online 
exercise regimens that you can follow as well, uh, and so on. So all, all of those put together, I think, can make it a little little brighter rather than um, more shades of gray and, and more um, uh, difficult and challenging the way we've been talking. And all of this can help to reduce stress as well. Thank you, Katrina and Wayne. This was a really great discussion today. I've learned more about how to step back and reframe working from home in a healthier way and accept that this is a long-term workplace reality. As academics, we often put others first before caring for ourselves, which depletes our energy over time. Recharging is more important than ever and needs to be built into our workday without guilt. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and are interested in creating an ongoing series to share strategies and tools that help SDSU colleagues to stay connected and balanced. Please share your telestress experiences with us as we build our online community. Thank you for joining us today.